and welcome to A Future Made. I'm Anna Pajajski, I'm a material scientist and writer. And I'm Robbie Armstrong, a reporter and journalist. Together we're bringing you A Future Made, a podcast by Harriet Watt University. In the series, we're finding out how pioneering research at Harriet Watt in the fields of science, business, psychology, technology, design and engineering is helping to change the future, solve the problems of today and make an impact on the global stage. This is the first in a three-part mini-series looking at the work going on at the university's psychology department. If you want to catch up on any of our earlier episodes, they're all available wherever you get your podcasts. So today, we're going to be talking about wellness and technology. We'll be hearing from academics in the university's School of Social Sciences and their psychology department. People with autism tell me that they're better on email. And why is that the case? So I then started to delve into this a bit more. We'll be finding out how advances in technology can help us improve our mental health and well-being, our learning and the way we work too. Plus, we'll be chatting to Harriet Abbott alumnus Myrto F. Statiu. We'll be getting into robotics, sports psychology, scuba diving and gamification. So strap in. Lots of different topics today. Very excited. First up, we're going to be hearing from Dr. Mel McKendrick, who's Assistant Professor at the School of Social Sciences and Psychology at Harriet Watt University. In a nutshell, Mel's work involves using feedback from technology or simulated environments to reduce anxiety and improve performance. Yeah, so Mel has done a lot of work in medical training using eye tracking technology to improve performance among junior doctors. So she helps them like deal with scans in surgical procedures, for example. So she's using the expert performance approach. So measuring how experts perform a procedure and then using objective metrics like data to measure where people are looking and other sensory movements. Then she'll give feedback on that to drive performance to people who are maybe learning or or at a lower level than the experts. And she's now using similar approaches to improve mental health and help with anxiety. There's two ways that I can do it. I can do it in a real world environment by having somebody giving a performance in a room or over something like Zoom or Teams and recording them while they are performing in front of an audience. So what they get to see after that and what we measure during that is they'll get to see a video of their performance. We are then breaking down their behaviours in that performance into measurable components. So things like their gesture analysis, body posture elements like that, how they are paying attention to the audience using eye tracking. And they will be able to monitor that output afterwards that is then linked to suggestions of how they can improve that performance so they're able to gauge where their performance is and they do this over and over again until their performance is improved. I was intrigued to find out how she would use this in the application of helping with anxiety or treating anxiety. Mm. I signed up to this public speaking exercise. Oh, cool. And you have to write a minute and a half of speech or two minutes and then you do the performance three times and this is in front of a team and they don't really give much away and then after each section there is a performance review I guess so they ask you the same list of questions every time and you fill them out and in doing this you realise that a lot of your 
judgments about your performance are based on internalized thoughts, prejudgments, mm. maybe negative thinking. So this is where the CBT comes in. And there's a performance review. So then you watch back your performance and then you do it again. Ah. And it was quite clever. I mentioned the real world environment. We can also use virtual reality so that people can be exposed to lots of different types of situations. We use um, a number of cognitive behavioural therapy based um, interventions within what we're doing. So there's two aspects. We're both creating objective measures that we can assess the mental state, assess the level of anxiety that's based both on their self-report measures, but also on actions that they're not aware that they're doing that we then link to data that we've collected on anxiety and we can then help them to improve their performance through these exercises that we give them using methods like cognitive restructuring where we have them challenge their assumptions about their beliefs about themselves in a situation and about other people who are watching them um, and we can use that to measure the difference in anxiety over time. So let's introduce another academic. This time we've got Tusha Rajendran and he is a professor of developmental psychology. He is an interdisciplinary researcher. So he's also working at the Edinburgh Centre for Robotics and he's looking into how socially assistive robots can be used for people with developmental conditions like autism and then harness this technology to help with cognitive, social and communicative development. I started off looking at um, interaction between people um, with and without autism a long time ago when I started off I did my master's degree and um, I wondered if people with autism would be better communicators in a different medium so what I got them to do was role-play characters in a comic strip environment because when you look at developmental conditions the diagnostic systems say something like you're, you've got a problem of communication but human communication can be in the form of text chat, telephone, um, email. It doesn't really, the diagnostic systems are really descriptive. They don't really delve in. So I had this idea of thinking, well, our people with autism tell me that they're better on email. And why is that the case? So I then started to delve into this a bit more. Here is an example of one of the experiments that they run in their robotics lab. We get people with autism who come into our labs and uh, they, they do a study, people with and without and the robot sort of approaches them and gives them some bits of information. And the key thing here is the interruption. So imagine you're at a desk. Does it make a difference if the thing that's interrupting you is a robot or is it a human? And that's probably something you never really, most people never really thought about. But imagine that for some group of people, um, people with autism, it may be more beneficial for that thing to interrupt you to be a robot because then you can really understand what's this thing's telling me. It's not human. They're pulling a face, I don't know whether they're angry or not angry. In that, in that context, it may make the work environment much more easy for people with autism. Win-win here is that when you start to design robots for people with special conditions, whether it be people with developmental conditions or people with a hearing impairment or people with a visual impairment, what you'd then do is design better systems robots for the whole population. And I think that's the thing, isn't it? Like these types of assistive technologies are designed with, in this case, neurodivergent people in mind. But the point is that actually that would help everybody get on the same page. Yep, 
And it, yeah, it's all, it's all about meeting people with autism and neurodivergent people where they are yep. rather than expecting them to come to where the sort of the idea of what normal social interaction or workplace behavior is. Totally. We can't change you. We don't want to change you. There's a reason you're the way you are. And that reason is important. It may be that you provide more creativity or have a different way of solving things. And there's a reason why this variation was in the gene pool. So we need these different kinds of people to be part of our society. Otherwise we get very blinkered thinking. And also I think from a pragmatic point of view, it's better to have as many people in the workforce employed as possible. It's a, it's a waste of talent to have people who are signing on when they could be paying their taxes. So it's, it's, it's all win-win as far as I can see. This is, this is true science. True science is about looking at the reality and you, the question I ask is why, why is this still in the genome? It's a really good point. It's it's everyone that's missing out if we block these people from kind of our workplaces and society. I was just checking the statistic that I wanted to give you. Um, the ONS last year did a study and they found that autistic people are the least likely cohort to be in work of any disabled group. Um, only 21.7% of autistic people are actually in employment, which is a really shocking statistic. So there's so much untapped potential there that this technology could help with. And you've got to ask why that's the case, what we're not doing yeah, exactly. as society to integrate and to make you know workplaces more inclusive. We'll be back with more stories from Harriet Watt's School of Social Sciences in just a moment. But first, we're going to hear from a Harriet Watt graduate in psychology about how being at the university is giving them new and amazing opportunities out there in the real world. My name is Mirto Estafio. I'm a third year PhD student at Harriet Watt University and I'm studying psychology. I have been with Here at Watt since 2013, in which I did my bachelor's degree. My PhD is on body representation, on how we feel our bodily self. I particularly enjoyed during the PhD to do some actual research and come up with ideas and design cool experiments for participants to take part. So after finishing my master's, I decided to come back to Here at Watt for a PhD because it is the most welcoming place to do that. The department that I'm in, they're doing some amazing research. So I felt that I missed that when I was, when I was doing my master's and I wanted to come back. I, it felt like coming back home, to be honest, I loved it. Being an international student at Herod Watt, I was based in Edinburgh. Uh, at first I got a bit of a shock. <laughs> At Herod Watt, I was shocked of how uh, the student opinion is uh, appreciated and valued and sought after. And I also was a bit shocked when it comes to the level of teaching that I received. You were doing a degree not to just learn to recite a book or lecture slides. You were doing a degree to become a critical thinker. Now that I'm about to finish my PhD and, and I'm in the process of applying for posts, I feel 100% ready to go for them. I have been able to gain some outside PhD work experience during my studies because the PhD prepared me so well for that. Now I'm also in the process of getting some interviews 
for my job applications and I wouldn't be in that, in that good position without uh, my PhD, to be honest. And if you'd like to hear more about psychology at Harriet Watt University or any other course for that matter, you can head over to their website, which is www.hw.ac.uk. You're listening to A Future Made, a podcast from Harriet Watt University with Anna Pozajski and Robbie Armstrong. So far, we've been hearing from academics at the university's School of Social Sciences. Still to come, though, are the benefits of scuba diving for people with disabilities. We've been hearing in this episode about the wellness and mental health benefits of technology and how this potential is being explored and untapped by academics at Harriet Watt. Next up, we're taking a closer look at gamification and problematic internet use. So first up here is Dr. Ki Guk Ni, and she is an associate professor in the School of Social Sciences at Heriot Watt University Malaysia campus. Her focus is on how psychological interventions can be used to promote cyber wellness, work behaviours and well-being. So here she is on the intervention programmes that she's developed in the face of this problematic internet usage. So school children who attended this workshop over eight weeks what we attract is what the habit of internet use, problematic gaming or pornography viewing. We try to see any changes that had happened after the interventions. Um, to our expectations, uh, the result has shown significant improvement because from the data set that we collected nationwide, uh, have shows that the interventions program that is developed did improve the problematic behavior of the, the youngsters in the school. And we also interview uh, school counselors at the experience as well as interview students who participated in, in the program. Uh, we do receive very good feedback and they will hope this program could be continued to benefit other students as well. So what were they doing in those two hour interventions then that made this behavior change happen? So she's going to get into this in a little bit, but um, I, th- I think there's like surveying and there's prompting and there's positive reinforcement and acknowledgement. I think they're trying to make people acknowledge what their thought patterns are and how mm. these lead to behaviours and sort of negative okay. thought processes and reactions. Which is where the CBT thing comes in, right? It's kind of like self-awareness of your own thoughts. I find myself catching myself doing this. Especially if I'm like working, like trying to write this book that I'm trying to write, you know, I'm blah, 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 tapping away. And then I get bored for a minute and then I immediately reach for my phone and go on like social media. And then 15 minutes later, I'm still scrolling. I find myself trying to catch myself in that moment and think like, you don't want to look at that, you're just bored. Exactly. What are the thought processes and the emotions that feed into that? Yes. And what is the intervention you need? So maybe it's when you feel the urge to pick up your phone, why don't you go and put the kettle on and have like a cup of herbal tea yep. before you check your phone? Yes. And have a think about whether you really want to spend 15 minutes on Instagram. Exactly. Is it just to do anything else? Because if it is, then exactly, you could go and make a cup of tea or, yeah, text effect, whatever it is, but like something that isn't just that mindless scrolling. <laughs> Here is key on how these psychological interventions work. We are looking at how to change the mindset in terms of their habit. We introduce the emotions. A lot of students, what we realise is that, especially those into the problematic 
uh, online gaming, they are unable to differentiate different emotions in reality because everything is virtual on the game. So what happened was the students would be taught on uh, how to recognize different emotions. It all, it all makes sense. Yeah, it does. But what a healthy thing to do to teach young people to like name and recognize their emotions. I wish I'd had that when I was that age. So most of the students reported by the end of eight weeks, they have gradually reduced engagement with problematic internet use and they are more engaged uh, with family activity, the new hobbies, for example. So they, they become a new person starting with a new journey. So we, we have a diagram that will guide students through the path from the first journey until the end uh, over the eight weeks. So it's a very structured uh, interventions program that we prepare and that helps students to uh, mitigate the issue uh, and face the issue uh, and become a better person. The benefits of it seem quite clear and not only the benefits that she was outlining there, but it, it, they actually stop the usage sort of progressing into more serious internet addiction mm. and reduce anxiety and stress in the process. And she's been inspired by um, the work in South Korea, which has like really high levels of internet addiction. And they have got a centre, a specific centre for sort of problematic internet use. So it's a preventive centre and that was set up by Korea's government in order to sort of combat these high levels of internet addiction. And she now wants to start a similar centre in Harriet Watt Malaysia campus and wants international partners and really wants to get this off the ground because this, the studies have proven to be so successful. Yeah, I can totally see that that would be really popular. <laughs> and, and it's interesting that she chose to study young people but, and I wonder whether their psychology would be drastically different from an adult population because, you know, we're old enough to remember when we didn't really use the internet as kids, right? Mm -hmm. I, I assume we're about the same age. <laughs> um, whereas obviously these kids now have, have grown up with the internet being um, part of their daily lives. So there might be a bit of a difference there, but I can see how yeah, we all fall into these traps of thinking, you know, any age, like you say, it's generational. Even our grandparents have, uh, you know, um, have this to some extent. So being able to roll that out to different populations, um, I can see would have a massive impact. So now we're going to meet Ron Salden, and he's also based at Harriet Watts Malaysia campus. I think it's safe to say he takes a completely different approach to the academics that we've heard in this episode so far. He is an assistant professor at the School of Social Sciences and a doctor of psychology. And he's interested in optimising students' learning processes. So he's trying to use innovative technologies, adaptive teaching methods. And he started telling me about a topic that we've covered before on A Future Made, and that is gamification. So one, one way to implement um, artificial intelligence in education has already been done in quite a number of studies. And the term, I don't know if you've heard the term gamification before, um, but yes, that has also been applied uh, at different schools, universities around the world. And it's basically a way to not only make the learning a bit more fun, but also to you know give the students a sense of progress. So just like in a game where they have to reach different levels to progress, this is something that 
many students don't really get uh, at a university course because they know, okay, I just need to get, study these topics. I have to, you know, study for my assignments, uh, for my final exam. So it's not a continuous process. It's more like, okay, I noticed some a deadline coming up. So gamification basically changes that in the sense that just like in a regular video game, it's something that happens continuously. And also students should then get more continuous feedback. So yeah, there is a there is an interesting point here, which is that apparently academia is lagging behind other sectors. Mm. So I think that's why he's introducing this gamification or having this, trying to look at what academia could do to further integrate mm-hmm. AI, gamification, tech into the learning processes. You know, the whole area or domain of education is a bit like a turtle. You know, it's lagging behind so many other areas where we are using technology to the greatest advantages that we can get, especially when it comes to artificial intelligence. Now, the reason why we're not doing it, of course, there are many different factors that have an effect. Um, this, for example, the money, the infrastructure, also the the computer literacy of teachers and lecturers and, and whatnot, um, what students have available at their their houses where they live and whatnot. Um, so it's, it's, a very, it's a very complicated issue, but still, we, we do know that it is possible and we do know that being able to implement real artificial intelligence, so not just changing the, the format or the mode in which we deliver our courses and materials, but actually using it to optimize what students are actually struggling with and helping them with that to improve their learning and in a way indirectly also affecting their well wellness and improving their mental health is something that we really need to start working towards. We, I think, have known for a long time that the educational system of the model where you learn a huge amount of information and then you regurgitate that in an exam suits actually a tiny minority of the way that most people learn and most people kind of process that information. So any different ways of doing it um, would definitely be kind of really welcomed by, I'm sure, the majority of people. So I did promise you a bit of scuba diving. I'm a man of my word. And (laughs) I think it's going to be a brief foray into it, but I thought it was just too interesting to pass up. So here is Ron to reveal all. So before I joined Harry Watt University, I was actually out of outside of academia for five years. And one of the jobs I had was indeed full-time uh, scuba diving instructor. Just imagine somebody who has had a traumatizing accident and ends up in a wheelchair and now has to adjust and accept the fact that he or she will have to be looking up at people when they talk at them. So change that to being underwater where they can actually look people right in their face, eye to eye again. That is something that's so powerful that you know it's, it's hard to explain unless you actually see it in front of your own eyes and, and see how these people respond to that kind of therapy. So that's that's something that I'm really um, strongly interested in. I've joined DiveFart Malaysia as well as a volunteer a few years ago before the pandemic started. Um, so that means I'm also qualified to um, go into the swimming pool and the ocean with the people with disabilities to help them train and become uh, certified scuba divers. And we've also organized two field trips for students to uh, engage in some activities with the people with disabilities in and around the pool. And actually we are currently working also on a staff field trip. Ron is just living the dream. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, he makes a really good point. I remember my granddad um had polio from when he was like four and he always kind of walked with a walking stick and later in his life he had a wheelchair 
But he continued swimming in his local leisure centre well into his 90s. Oh, wow. Because, you know, being in the water it is such a supportive um, kind of medium for people that have mobility issues. He, I don't think, ever went scuba diving, although I wouldn't have put it past him. <laughs> <laughs> scuba diving is like next level, isn't it? Um, but I am sure like a really powerful way of experiencing your body in a totally different way, you know, using it in a different way. And I can see how it'd be really empowering for people. Yeah, it's a little bit of a, a tangent from the other technology we've been talking about. But ultimately, scuba diving is, you know, using like technology in this instance to help people with disabilities. And mm. it's using sort of adaptive technology. The interesting thing is everyone needs kit to scuba dive. Mm. So we just need to adapt the technology a little bit more to help people. And there's this really famous TED talk with this woman in a wheelchair who goes scuba diving and it is just the most glorious thing to watch and the freedom it gives her to move mm. and she is able to experience sensations that aren't possible in the sort of normal built environment and it's just so empowering and beautiful and yeah just very inspired as well mm. and I think it it just reveals something great about the potential of technology to transform people's lives in sort of un unexpected ways. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. When I was doing a lot of um, sea swimming training, um, there was a woman who was in our training club who I think she had MS and she was wheelchair bound on land. Um, but she'd just, you know, wheel herself into the sea and then would swim for like six hours at a time and was training to swim the channel. She was an amazing woman. Um, and yeah, it's such a, it's such a leveller being in the water. So before we wrap up, we're going to hear from one of the academics that we'll be speaking to in our next episode, and that is Deborah Hall, who is a professor of positive psychology in the School of Social Sciences. And she has been looking into the role of technology in academia in the pandemic. But not only that, she has been working out how we can help and assist people whose first language might not be English and whose maybe cultural background might not be the, the same. Actually, a move towards some smaller class sizes and a move towards teaching online has given staff a unique opportunity to develop closer relationships with students than maybe they had hitherto. So the challenge now is to understand how we can preserve those elements of good practice that we've seen evolve over the pandemic and take them back into the classroom now that we're moving back into phase teaching. So I teach psychology on the Malaysia campus and many of our students come from an Asian background. So cultural context here is really important because it does contribute to how students learn in the classroom and their expectations of that relationship between the, the teacher and, and the student. Um, from interviews with some of our students about some of these phenomena, um, the students have told me that they, they realise that maybe compared to some of their Scottish counterparts, they are quite shy and quite reserved. And so that transition into the online virtual learning environment has given them a little bit more anonymity and that to them has provided a safer space to engage and interact with academic staff. So for example, students can write 
on a blackboard and their writing is anonymous. So the teacher doesn't know who's written a comment. And this encourages students to have a go at asking a question or have a go at trying to answer a question and not feel too inhibited if the answer is not quite right. They've also used those kind of social media tactics of using emojis. If a student has given a comment or answered a question really well, then sometimes there'll be a round of applause or some hearts. And students find that really motivating as well. Such a wide range of different research areas that we've heard today at Heriot Watt. There's using technology to reduce anxiety. There's eye tracking software with Mel McKendrick. Talked about robots in the workplace to assist neurodivergent people with Tusha Rajendran. Gamification to promote a healthy online life with Dr. Ki Guk Nee. And tech to improve physical accessibility and gamification in all sorts with Ron Salden. So these are the sorts of things that students at Heriot Watt could be tapping into and working on. It's such a sort of bright future when you look at the research actually happening. We've said it before, but it sort of gives you hope for humanity and for various <laughs> sectors and various problems that we're encountering, you know, on this planet. And I think the the cross-disciplinary nature of this research is super interesting. I often talk to young people who are understandably you know, anxious about the choices that they're making, the subjects that they're wanting to study. Um, but this hopefully should give listeners hope that anything that you go on to study can really be applied to other problems that might seem at first to be outside of your kind of remit, right? So we've talked about roboticists collaborating with psychologists and and kind of everything in between. So it's it's university's a really exciting place to be and this this form of collaborative work um, is very, very typical and it's awesome to see it happening at Harriet Watt so effectively. So, thanks for listening to A Future Made. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss an episode. Just search for A Future Made. Or you can head over to Harriet Watt University's website at hw.ac.uk. And if you'd like to find out more about psychology at the university or in fact any other course there, you can head over to www.hw.ac.uk. 